Useful Idiots. I'm one of your hosts, Katie Helper. And I'm the other host, Aaron Nate. How are you, Katie? I'm good, you? Good. Big show today. Big show. Spanning Super the globe. Show. Spanning the globe, yeah. Very important yeah. topic. We'll be going to uh, our guest, Asal Rod, to talk about the protests in Iran. And we'll be uh, checking in on stories from around the planet, this crazy planet of ours. This, this crazy world, this crazy yeah. little world called home. So should we get to it? Our four yeah, food groups? Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. Yeah. For Democrats, we have an interesting, sucky story. Uh, it turns out that the guys, well, I'm going to read a tweet from Shoe on a Head. The guys who run Occupy Democrats are under fire right now for allegedly pocketing PAC funds. And I'm screaming at the owners. Now deleted response. The Occupy Democrats election fund PAC run by Omar Rivero raised $797,000 from 2021 to 2022. They contributed zero to federal candidates and they spent $577,000 on fundraising consultants. Would Occupy Democrats and Omar Rivera says care to explain? It turns out that $250,000 of the $797,000 went into a company owned by Omar and his brother. Now here's the response from Omar Rivero. If you understood the time and effort that goes into making viral memes and the impact that they have, you might respect our work more. Those okay. viral memes worth hundreds of thousands of dollars in uh, people's hard-earned money right. that they donate. That they donate. Uh, <laughs> thinking that they were now, now it would be one thing if they were like, please donate to us so we can keep making these amazing memes. But I don't <laughs> think that people donated to them under that, under those auspices. No. And the funny thing is, like, this group Occupy Democrats, I think the idea is to take, like, the brand of Occupy Wall Street to then Occupy Democrats and maybe push Democrats to the left. Like, we're right. Occupy Democrats. Like, we represent Occupy Wall Street. And so here they are, though, saying that they need your money to make <laughs> memes, memes, which is not exactly, I think, the point of Occupy when it started way back right. when. Right. I don't think so. Although, I mean, the world has gotten more digital. Yes, it has. That's true. The, the world has changed since Occupy Wall Street. So maybe this Memes. is what Occupy Wall Street would be. Maybe they'd be fighting not in the streets, not in Zuccotti Park, but on the interwebs. But let's put up that tweet again, because it's so funny. Um, let's just it's it, to me, it's okay. so Democrat. He's so indignant that someone could dare question him taking hundreds of thousands of dollars Right. And not appreciating the work that goes into making viral memes. Yeah. <laughs> if you understood the time and effort that goes into making viral memes and the impact they have, you might respect our work more. I mean, that's someone who's very proud of their of their viral memes. He should have just kept it up there, that response. Yeah, it's true. Too bad he deleted it. Yeah. Um, but that I'm sure one... that sure is a meme that went viral because this tweet that is took off making viral, fun yeah. of him for it. Yeah. 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 Well, great job, Occupy Democrats. Yeah. Don't let anybody impugn your viral memes. Right. Okay. So for Republicans suck, well, unfortunately, we have to talk about him this week. Donald J. Trump uh, has been um, weighing in on what's going on with Ukraine, where you just had a major escalation where three different sections of the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline uh, were apparently bombed. That's what the suspicion is. And this is the pipeline that basically takes Russian gas to the rest of Europe. And it was bombed in three different sections. And so Trump is is now uh, weighing in on this and actually offering to help negotiate and be a, a, a mediator to resolve this big crisis. But 
before actually that happened, he said something else recently about the dangers of this conflict because he's he's concerned that it could escalate into nuclear war. And this is how he put it at a recent rally just before this Nord Stream 2 uh, sabotage incident happened. The N-word, you know what the N-word is? It's no, no, no. It's the nuclear word. He mentioned the N-word yesterday, the nuclear word, not supposed to be mentioned. So only Trump could find a way to, uh, in warning about the dangers of nuclear war, to, to try to throw in a uh, racist epithet, you know, playing to his crowd, obviously, because he knows exactly what the crowd is going to say in response right. to that. So that's a uh, strange way to be warning about nuclear war. And he's, he's referring to Vladimir Putin uh, in his right. speech where Putin made a uh, what some took to be a thinly veiled threat of nuclear weapons. Although, actually, after reading about this and being corrected myself on my interpretation, I have a different takeaway. But anyway, the point is that's Trump's way of warning about nuclear war. And now he's saying he's, he's positioning himself as someone who could help resolve uh, the current you know, Ukraine crisis, not really appreciating his own role in fueling it. So this is actually uh, a post he made on his outlet, Truth Social, where he basically offers to be a broker. He says, uh, after, in the aftermath of Nord Stream 2 being sabotaged, apparently, Trump says, U.S. leadership should remain cool, calm, and dry. I don't know what dry means. On the sabotage of the Nord Stream pipelines, this is a big event that should not entail a big solution, at least not yet. I think that means nuclear war. Uh, so not the N-word, which he doesn't want right. to say. Uh, the Russia-Ukraine catastrophe should never have happened and would definitely not have happened if I were president. Do not make matters worse with the pipeline blow-up. Be strategic, be smart, brilliant. Get a negotiated deal done now. Both sides need and want it. The entire world is at stake. I will head up group, question mark, question mark, question mark. All right, so he's all over the place there. And while I think Trump has been one of the few Western politicians to call for diplomacy, right. that's true. So you have to credit him for that. He's also so erratic that he's also simultaneously bragging all the time about policies that he undertook that brought us to this disastrous war. For example, the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline. Uh, it's true that the U.S. wants to stop it and that the Biden administration put a lot of energy in trying to stop it. But it was Trump really escalated the attempt to undermine it because there was all this talk that you know Russia would use the pipeline to undermine Europe's energy security. In fact, it was flowing fine. Uh, until the Ukraine war came along. And in fact, there was a whole new Nord Stream 2 pipeline built and ready to go, but it was the U.S. that stopped it. And Trump played a major part in that by imposing sanctions on Germany even and on the pipeline operators to try to undermine it. And Trump recently bragged about that before, just, just a few days before Nord Stream 2 suffered uh, this uh, sabotage, Nord Stream 2 and 1. So here he is recently bragging about he, how he tried to stop the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. So they make up a story about Russia. Just so you know, I was tougher in Russia than any president by four. I'm the one that stopped Nord Stream 2, the pipeline. I'm the one that did the big sanctions. And I guarantee you one thing, Putin was not going into Ukraine. I guarantee you that. I guarantee you. Nobody was tougher than me, but I also got along with them. And that's a good thing, you know, getting along with other countries. Yeah, so there he is. He's simultaneously bragging about how tough he was and how he tried to stop 
this Nord Stream 2 pipeline that now really has stopped because it just got blown up, at least parts yeah. of it, while also saying that we need to have diplomacy. So yeah. he really needs to make up his mind. I mean, if he, care, if he cared about being consistent and having an actual position, right. he needs to really figure out which lane he's in. Is it diplomacy or is it confrontation? Because his policies were all in the direction of confrontation. So in that respect, he's gotten what right. he pushed for back when he was president. It is true that he was always kind of nice about, like his policies towards Russia were hard, but he liked to kind of wax poetic about Putin as a person. Oh, sure. Yeah, he likes Putin. Putin's an yeah. authoritarian and he likes that. Right. And uh, he respects just power, like, you the know, this man, image of yeah. like strong men. He he identifies he with that. on a horse. Absolutely. Uh, he's right. into that part. But the whole thing about getting along with a country and uh, being constructive, right. like, you know, for example, he says like he claims to oppose nuclear war, but he killed one right. of the most important nuclear treaties ever reached. That was the INF Treaty reached between the U.S. and the Soviet Union under Reagan and Gorbachev. Trump killed that, which right. had eliminated an entire class of nuclear weapons. So he massively escalated the, the nuclear threat. He almost killed the New START Treaty, which is the last treaty limiting the nuclear stockpiles of both countries. He was very close to doing that. And in fact, he wanted to bully Russia into accepting a new version of that treaty, but and on terms that would really weaken it. And Russia actually refused. Russia actually refused to give Trump a win on that right before the election. Uh, and they actually interfered, you could say, on Biden's behalf because they figured that Biden was more amenable to actually extending New START with no preconditions. And that's what happened. Biden won. He came into office. First thing he did was renew New START just before it was about to expire. So Trump really is all over the place. Right. And uh, he thinks he's a diplomat. He thinks he's pro-peace, at least according to his statements, while still bragging about how tough he was and how his policies really pushed the world into the situation it's in right now. Yeah, it really is kind of impressive the way a lot of people go from one, you know, like are hypocrites or inconsistent or contradict themselves. But this is cool because it's like within seconds that he goes yeah. from one extreme to another. Exactly. It takes a lot of security to do that. I got it. I'm going to hand him the credit. Like, I think he's driven <laughs> by a lot of insecurity, but there's also some, I mean, he's a man of contradictions. There's definitely some security in there that lets him do that. He's securely confident in lying and yeah. just being all over the place. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he knows he could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue. Right. So lately, I've been on a mission to change the way people view their finances and to encourage people to overcome obstacles and adversity. It's just more and more important to me every day. So I've teamed up with the folks at Life Surge. Life Surge is a one-day faith-based event where you'll walk in hungry for success and you'll leave ready to build your resources to leave an impact on others. We're talking faith-fueled finance, growing resources, crushing obstacles, and then, yeah, using it all for something way bigger than yourself. I'll be joining Life Surge in Cincinnati on Saturday, August 3rd. Joining me in Cincinnati is Nick Vujicic, the man with no arms or legs that speaks about his trials and triumphs, soul surfer and author Bethany Hamilton, Duck Dynasty's Willie Robertson, and author and pastor Craig Groeschel, star of CNBC's The Prophet, Marcus Lemonis, and Bethel Music. That's Life Surge, Cincinnati, on Saturday, August 3rd. Tickets are on sale exclusively at lifesurge.com. I hope to see you there. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about 
how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford anything, wherever you listen. So for Isn't That Weird, we have an interesting, weird moment from uh, Joe Biden speaking at a White House conference on hunger, nutrition, and health. And I want to thank all of you here for including bipartisan elected officials like Representative Governor, Senator Braun, Senator Booker, Representative Jackie, are you here? Where's Jackie? I didn't think she was was going to be here to help make this a reality. Okay, so the problem is you you hear him say, Jackie, are you here? Where's Jackie? She must not be here. Now, I'm going to say that's a safe bet that she's not there. Why is that? Well, because Jackie Walorski, Republican of Indiana, to whom he's referring, uh, couldn't make it because she did. Because she's dead. She died in a car crash uh, in August. So. That's a fair reason for not being somewhere. That is a fair. Yeah, I don't think anyone will blame Jackie for not being there. And I'm not making light of her of her death. That's very sad. But, um, you know. Look, and I know the president has a lot on his mind and you got to keep track of a lot of stuff and juggle a lot of things. But the life or death of a person, I feel like that should be something you remember. Especially if it's a member of Congress and especially if you've actually already issued a condolence announcement about it, which Biden did back when she was killed in that car accident. Yeah. You know what it is? I think Biden's just it's too painful for him. It's not real. He for hasn't him processed yet. it. He yet. hasn't processed yeah. it. Yeah. 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 Anyway, Republicans will will go nuts with that one. I'm sure I know. they're going yeah. to so love that one. Serve. Yeah. 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 But so it's very weird. Weird. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So for isn't that terrible? Let's go back to the Nord Stream two pipeline and look. No one's taking credit yet for the bombing of the pipeline. Uh, there's a lot of accusations going back and forth. Ukraine is accusing Russia of doing it. Uh, Russia has suggested it was carried out by the U.S., but here's somebody, surprisingly, who is also faulting the U.S., but not from the point of view of being accusatory. He's actually being grateful, and his name is Radek Sikorsky. He is a member of parliament. He tweets this with a picture of the gas bubbling up from the destruction of the parts of the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, and he just tweets, thank you, USA. So he's a member of the, of the European Parliament, uh, Europe's highest elected body, thanking the U.S. for an act of uh, terrorism against really all of Europe, because, you know, this was in waters off of Denmark, and this gas goes to uh, Germany and the rest of Europe, and he's thanking the U.S. for blowing it up. And by the way, he happens to be married to someone who's very influential in yeah. the U.S., which is Ann Applebaum. She is a writer for The Atlantic. And she, if you turn on if you turn on MSNBC or CNN, she's always on uh, to make the case for why we need to increase support for the Ukraine proxy war. So this is someone who's very well tied with the U.S. establishment. In fact, his uh, if you go to his Twitter, his banner image is a picture of him with President Biden. Oh, there it is. There it is. So there he is with uh, Joe Biden. And so, look, if he's that grateful for the U.S. Oh, apparently, in his in yeah. his opinion, I'm not saying he's right, but if he's if he's correct that the U.S. did carry out this attack on our stream too, then I'm sure he can go thank him in person at the next opportunity. All right. Well, that was Democrats suck, Republicans suck. Isn't that weird? Isn't that terrible? And those are your four basic food groups.
Anything else on your mind, Aaron? Well, there was news recently that uh, Edward Snowden has won, uh, has been granted citizenship by Russia after hiding out there for many years. And of course, you know, what gets overlooked in his story is that he didn't actually want to take exile in Russia. He was on his way to Ecuador when the U.S. successfully revoked his passport to keep him in Russia. And he's been there ever since. And so recently uh, he was given citizenship by Russia and that triggered a whole new round of attacks on him and being called a traitor. But what was odd is how the Washington Post published Pulitzer winning stories based on Snowden's revelations and his leaks. So you think the Washington Post would have at least some minimal respect for Edward Snowden, no matter what they think about him being in Russia, but they don't. So look at how they described him uh, in, in reporting on this news that he has been granted citizenship by Russia. So the Post says this, Snowden, who considers himself a whistleblower, fled the U.S. to avoid prosecution and has been living in Russia, which granted him asylum in 2013. So that first part, Snowden, who considers himself a whistleblower. Fancies himself. It's so rude. It's so I mean, rude. Even if the Washington Post hadn't used his whistleblowing material right. for its Pulitzer winning stories, even if they hadn't used it. The idea that you can you can make his whistleblower status subjective right. and not just a verified fact when he exposed illegal government surveillance, as multiple courts have recognized and everybody recognizes right. now. The fact that you can like reduce his whistleblowing to something to a matter of self-perception. Yeah. It's, it's just like it's so it's so corrupt on their part yeah, because really they, of course, have benefited from his leaks. And the fact that his leaks were consequential and whistleblowing, it's not even in dispute. Yeah, it's really gross. Helen Keller, who considered herself deaf and blind. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And meanwhile, look, they have no problem calling other people whistleblowers. So, you know, like the CIA analyst who uh, uh, complained about Trump freezing weapons to Ukraine while Rudy Giuliani was pressuring Ukraine to investigate Joe Biden. You will never, ever, ever hear the Post to say that that analyst describes himself as a whistleblower. He's just a whistleblower. Right. But someone like Snowden, who exposed mass illegal surveillance, all of a sudden, well, it's, he considers himself that way. Right. And also the other thing about the criticism of Snowden is that people want him to martyr himself. The fact that he didn't want to stay in the United States was so understandable. Look, away, look at the way they treated uh, Julian Assange and Chelsea Manning. And people are upset. They think he this makes him a Putinist or something, that he stayed in Russia. I would never would have come back to the United States without guarantees. Yeah, he even said he would come back if he can be guaranteed a fair trial. Right. That was his condition for coming back. And uh, of course, he can't be given that guarantee because he'd be placed under uh, draconian conditions if he ever came back. Right. It's so petty. I mean, for whatever reason, I don't know why the Post doesn't like Edward Snowden anymore uh, after he helped them win a Pulitzer, but it's so petty to treat him like that. Right. Also, someone pointed out on Twitter that um, he tried getting asylum from 27 other countries and he gave all of his documents to American journalists before going to Russia. Yes, of course. And people have tried to uh, falsely accuse him of handing documents to China or Russia, which is false. I mean, there's absolutely no evidence for that at all. And this is the classic tactic in trying right. to discredit people who literally risk their lives yeah. to expose wrongdoing. That's how so they get treated. Yeah. Yeah. And all the people out there, if you like Daniel Ellsberg and you think he's a hero for exposing the Pentagon Papers, you may be interested in knowing 
that Daniel Ellsberg considers Snowden a hero. We are so excited to be talking to Asil Rod. Yes, Asil is a research director at NIAC, the National Iranian American Council, and author of a book recently released called State of Resistance, Politics, Culture, and Identity in Modern Iran. It's a good book. All right, let's go to Asil Rod. Asal Rod, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So what do you think is most important for people to know about the protests going on inside Iran? Uh, well, I think right now there's um, some frustration with the fact that both on the left and the right, it's as if uh, everyone's sort of playing out their own political ideas onto this very organic and real uh, movement and protest that's going on in Iran. I think one of the most important things to realize is to historically contextualize what we're looking at. Um, I mean, you could go back, you know, a couple of years, you could go back several years, you go back decade, decades, you could go back 100 years into understanding where we are with these protests right now. Because in reality, uh, Iranians have been struggling for uh, a government that represents their wants and desires, that allows them freedoms, political and social freedoms, um, for well over a century. And they've struggled to have that, you know, what sort of seems like a basic idea actually be fulfilled. Um, a lot of people look at the revolution in 1979. That was obviously a watershed moment for Iranian history. And while it may have brought independence, it didn't bring the political and social freedoms that were also promised as part of the revolution. So really, that's that's at the core of, of what we're seeing. It was sparked by you know, the killing of uh, a young Iranian woman, Masa Amini, um, for, you know, not having her hijab on uh, right, you know, whatever, however you want to define that. But it speaks to, you know, the social restrictions that exist currently in Iran, especially the ones that target women. Uh, there are discriminatory laws across the Iranian like penal code that make women lesser second class citizens. So that's why you see a lot of the protests being women-centric and women-centered, why they are the center of the story is because obviously it was sparked by uh, the killing of this young woman by Iran's so-called morality police. So there are, you know, there's this idea sometimes on, on the left that this is outside uh, intervention, that these are agitators, when in reality, these are legitimate protests with people who are expressing legitimate grievances. They are frustrated from so many different aspects. And that's why while it was sparked by this women-centered idea, uh, you can see by the chance, you can see by just the how it cuts across Iranian society, the fact that it goes deeper into, you know, deeply held grievances at the core of the system. At the same time, you have people on the other side who want to appropriate this and, and sort of turn it into a justification for uh, U.S. policies like sanctions policies, saying that, see, we were right to sanction them, except for the fact that those policies were also hurt civilians. Um, they hurt women, right? When when you have policies that economically hurt a civilian population, they hurt uh, the most marginalized, the most vulnerable, and that also happens to be women in this case. So there's this sort of, you know, tug of war of who can use these protests to align with a, a particular viewpoint, but we should really just be looking at the protesters themselves and what they're asking for. The Iranian government put out a video that it claims shows um, this young woman who died, uh, Masa Amini, collapsing uh, before she passed away. 
from your point of view, what do we know that's confirmed about what happened with her? I mean, how she was detained in the first place, how she was treated when she was in custody. And then can you talk overall about, you know, what these morality police do and how they confront women like Masa Amini? Well, the morality police are there. I mean, just just the name is absurd on its face, right? The, the fact that they're called morality police. Um, but they uh, typically are there. They have these minivans that are around different like cities in the country. And, and they're there to, to police women's bodies, to police uh, not just women. There is a dress code for men, too. I think that that's important to say. But obviously, the dress code for women is far more strict uh, and enforced in a very different way. But for instance, like men can't wear shorts and cutoffs. You know, there, there is a general dress code. But... Um, the way that it imposes itself on the lives of women is quite different and much more strict. Uh, so you have the morality police there basically to, I've been stopped myself actually, stopped just to be like, oh, you have to fix this, like too much of your hair is showing, this is too tight, this is too short. That's typically what they're what they're doing. And uh, under this administration, under the Raisi administration, there's been stricter, I mean, this is an ultra conservative hardline administration. So there's been um, stricter, not only a stricter view of what is allowed, but stricter enforcement. Um, but deeper than that is the idea that in, you know, there are parallels that people make to say uh, police brutality in the US, right? You can't just look at it as one incident. This is a system that allows violence against civilians and it has done so over and over again. And that's why you have a situation the way that you do in this case. Um, when you look at the video that the that's released from Iranian media, Iranian state media, uh, I mean, it's an attempt to avert responsibility, right? They're saying, well, this this didn't happen under, under we didn't do anything. See, she's perfectly fine and she collapses. Except for the fact that there are eyewitnesses that say she was being beaten uh, in the police van. Uh, we have seen scenes of violence, the, the morality police being violent against uh, people that they stopped before. So this wouldn't be something unprecedented. All of that is to say that she shouldn't have been detained in the first place. Like that's the most important point. The fact that there is this law, this dress code that um, doesn't allow women a basic form of free expression um, is in and of itself the problem. So this sort of attempt to avert responsibility, like, well, you know, we didn't really do anything. She was put in that position. She was put in that situation, whether it was a physical abuse, whether it was the psychological uh, just abuse of being in that position, the amount of stress that it can cause people. Um, again, I, I know this from firsthand experience and from people that I know, it's extremely stressful to be in that situation. Um, so the state is responsible, period. There's just no question to that fact. And you can look at it from the, the illegitimacy of the law all the way through to how these cases and how uh, civilians are handled. So can you just explain what happens when, like what happened to you, that experience that you're walking down the street and they say what? I mean, I, and I don't want to bring my experience into it. I, in 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 a sense of uh, trying to compare it to anything that yeah, people in just, the country yeah. actually go through. But um, yeah, I mean, in terms of they basically, you know, there's someone. Uh, in this case, it was a woman who stopped me because that's something important to know too. It's not just men who are part of the morality police. In fact, women are an integral part of it as well. They're the ones who stop other women and and tell them. You know, in my case, it was you know, I had to pull my sleeves down on the sort of like overcoat that I was wearing. So the way that the dress code is technically is you're supposed to cover your hair, um, your hair and your neck, like only your face is supposed to show. And uh, you're basically like the figure of your body is supposed to be covered with a dresses with some kind of longer, you know, overcoat or something like that as well. And this has been throughout the decades since the revolution, this 
started being imposed on Iranian women very short, shortly after the revolution. Um, and just to point out, even right then, even at the very beginning of when it was imposed, Iranian women protested this, the imposition of the hijab law. So depending on who is the president, the administration, and sort of just the, the political climate of the country, um, how this law is enforced has has like an ebb and a flow. You know, it depends on the situation. For instance, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad was someone who came in uh, in the early 2000s and tried to um, address this more strictly, creating the Gashda Ershad, the morality police, to enforce these rules and these laws. Um, and so under the Rouhani administration, there's some loosening. And you can see that for anybody who actually travels to the country and sees it, uh, I mean, the way that women wear this headdress and, and wear this garb is very different. And you can tell the people who are choosing to wear it because of the way they are wearing it. And you can tell the people who would not wear it if they had the choice because of how they're, again, how they're choosing to wear it. But under this administration, um, it's been more strictly enforced. And so one of the reasons why I think the emotion that this incident has sparked is so high is because for so many people who are looking at it, if you're Iranian, if you're in Iran, if you have family there, this could be anyone. Like Masa Amini could be any young person, any young woman uh, who is out because this is how typically women in the country are not, you know, they they loosely wear these headscarves. And so the idea that somebody was actually targeted, detained and beaten for this, that's part of, I think, what sent so many shockwaves is that this could have been any individual, any person. And what do you mean woman, when I you say, sorry. And when you, you say that you can tell whether or not people like are choosing to wear it or wearing it out of force or um, obligation, how, how can you tell? Well, if someone is, you know, if, if for instance, the there are Iranian women more conservative who wear something called the chador. It's a it's a sheet like garb. It covers a lot more of like your body and your hair. Choosing in the sense now, I don't know their their family situation. Sure, I don't know right. if if it's been. But in terms of the way that the law is regulated, that's not required, right? Okay. So in the sense that there is a difference in the way people wear it. I mean, obviously. Uh, especially younger generations of Iranian women have tried to take back this space, right? The space where their bodies are controlled, they try to take back that control in different ways. And so they try to make this a very fashionable sort of attire. And in that sense, you can tell when someone is wearing it in, in, in a way where it's very loosely on their head, they're not wearing it through a religious obligation. They're wearing it because they have no other choice. They have to go out with this attire on them. But when they try to make it um, more, when they're not really covering their hair, you you can you can sort of tell this person would likely not wear this particular attire if they weren't forced to if it wasn't enforced upon them to do it. I remember seeing that movie. Um, uh, what's his the director's name uh, who did the divorce? I forgot. Oh, a separation. A separation. Yeah, yeah, separation. Mm -hmm. I remember it. It was interesting watching the way the different characters in his. They had a film festival of his in New York City a couple years ago, and it was interesting seeing the different characters like expose more or less hair. Yeah. I mean, even so, if that's actually an important point, because even when they're outside of the country, but they're in a public uh, setting, those, you know, whether it's a, an actress, whether it's a, an editor or director, somebody who's basically somebody who who works in uh, different industries in Iran, when they're in a public space, even outside, you notice that they wear it, mm. but, but they wear it because they sort of officially have to right. Not, again. And, and you can and you can somewhat tell. I mean, I say that and I thought I think it's important to note that. Um, young Muslim women who also do choose to wear the hijab wear it in can wear it in fashionable ways as well. But 
you know, there are clearly, as we've seen in these protests, there are clearly Iranian women who would choose not to wear it if they had the choice. The, that, and that is the core of the issue. The core of the issue is choice. Is there anyone inside the Iranian government establishment who argues that actually, I mean, putting like morality aside and respect for people's individual freedoms, but just like pragmatically from the government's point of view, that this law, that this this edict is not in our own interest because it leads to popular unrest like this. Has anyone put forward that point of view? Is there any room for debate inside the establishment on this issue? I mean, just like everything else, it's not a monolith, right? So yeah, there's always room for debate. And that's why I said, remember, if you have different administrations, you have different levels of restrictions and enforcements because they don't necessarily think the same way about those enforcements. Uh, to your point, even put, putting, you know, th there is the issue of uh, why we control, why they control how women dress. Um, but you know, in fact, in these protests, uh, there was a statement from reformists, reformist politicians in Iran who basically said we should abolish the morality police and get rid of the dress code. So there is definitely uh, an internal debate about this and about basically anything. I mean, any political or social issue that you can take, even within the political establishment, there is always a debate. Uh, and when you break it down, you know, often it's broken down into sort of like two or three camps, maybe reformists, moderates, hardliners. These are, this is the language that we're accustomed to. But even within those camps, there is differences in points of view, right? And, and it seems like that's an intuitive point. But when we talk about other countries, we always have to make that point because for whatever reason, when we're, we can see nuance when we talk about ourselves, we understand that there's a diverse range of political views in the United States. But when we talk about other countries, all of a sudden, everything is very black and white. And it's, it's not as it's not as simple as that there. So there's certainly um, internal debates that you can see occurring outwardly, as well as by how this policy is actually implemented uh, and enforced in different administrations and different political climates. I don't want to take anything away from the bravery of the, of the women leaders of these protests and the repression that they face, but there has also been violent attacks on state forces in these protests, if I have that correctly. Do you have any sense, I mean, if I'm accurate there, do you have any sense of who is driving, who is behind that? There is a deep sense of frustration in uh, in the country. And that frustration comes from, you know, decades of repression, mismanagement, corruption, as well as economic pressure. And some of that comes from the outside. I can say that, yes, economic pressure comes from the outside. Sanctions, you know, Iran is not sanctioning itself. It's being sanctioned by the United States. Um, those sanctions are extremely strict I mean, under the Trump administration, uh, Secretary of State Pompeo basically outright said that when they are done, this will be the strongest sanctions uh, system in history, right? And up until February of this year, Iran was the most sanctioned country in history. Now it is Russia after the invasion of Ukraine. So there's pressure from all sides on the Iranian populace. Uh, when I say that, yes, there are there are there have been incidents of um, violence against police. I think one there have been a few injuries and at least one police officer that I know of that's actually been killed. But to a certain extent, we have to contextualize this in the idea that it's protesters fighting back, right? They, that's part of what makes these protests different than previous protests. Like we've seen protests in Iran in November of 2019 that were violently suppressed. We saw protests in 2017 and 18. Um, the last time I think we've seen this sort of the middle class and 
the working class and the lower like poorer classes in the country come together in the manner in which they are right now uh, really goes back to 2009 during the the green movement and the contested election of 2009 um and even then you saw violent repression of protests uh people being killed uh both in the protests in june and then later again in protests in december of that year so you know i do think that it's important to acknowledge that these protests have an element and this isn't across the board there's protests happening all across the country um and they've been ha- they've been going on for two weeks now and there's a lot of just peaceful processions there's protests at universities where students are just speaking right they're just chanting things so it's not i i it would be misleading to describe it as these are violent protests but there is an element of of sort of fighting back um within them which is different than what we've seen before yeah, Aaron, I mean, does, why would that take away from the bravery of the women protesting? You're saying that there's, it's like it's happening in the opposite direction or? I'm, I'm saying is that, you know, uh, I don't want to ignore the fact that some police officers are getting killed and there's a video of one getting stabbed to death. Right. And uh, I just, I'm uncomfortable because, because this is a government that the U.S. is trying to overthrow. Accordingly, right. violent attacks like that just get ignored. And, we're, and uh, the protests are portrayed as just peaceful. And um, so that's why in acknowledging the violence, I'm not trying to take away from those right. who are being peaceful and being very brave in the face of government violence. But I also don't want to ignore the violence that's being perpetrated against the government. That's that's what I'm saying. I understand. I understand what you're saying, by the way. And so that's why I'm saying, yeah, we can acknowledge that. And I don't think that it's I don't think it takes away when you acknowledge that, because like I said, it's coming from, you know, deep, deep seated resentment. And in reality, they're just fighting back. Right. They have been there. They have, you know, it's even this is it's interesting. Um, They're described as clashes. And and I hate it when one side is armed and the other isn't. And it's described as clashes. And we see this all the time in the case of uh, uh, Palestinians resisting Israeli occupation. And they're called clashes like no one side is armed and the other side is not. And it's the same in this situation in the sense in the sense that the protesters are not armed you know iran is not a country like the us where there's millions of guns so these are not armed protesters these are there's a in terms of a monopoly on violence and and arms that's on the side of the state so i i want to acknowledge what aaron said because i do understand that the way that protests are, or, or just incidents, right? Human rights incidents or anything is portrayed in Western media is inconsistent, right? We don't do it consistently. There are narratives that are coming. That's why I said it earlier. There's on all sides, there's this attempt to create a narrative of these protests that sort of lends itself to whatever political position someone holds. And I think on all sides that takes away from, from the reality on the ground. And, and the thing I'll say about the fact that not all protesters are peaceful is i remember this debate during uh blm protests in 2020 right right? so there were people who the people who were against blm protests were like well they're they're looters and they're this and they're that now i'll point out an irony that there are people who did that when it was blm protests but now that it's iranians protesting and even if they use that kind of violence it's perfectly fine but they have no empathy or sympathy for when blm protesters are breaking the glass of a Target store, right? So so that's what I mean when I say there's these double standards in the way that we look at things. And to be consistent, you know, my response was the same during BLM protests. It was, there is deep-seated resentment and anger because of a system 
that doesn't serve a particular community or doesn't serve, you know, the larger population, however you want to look at it. And my personal opinion is that whoever is commenting on these things simply has to be consistent when they comment on them. But if you commented one way when it was BLM and now you're on the other side and suddenly, you know, you're taking a different stance, then then that to me shows that there is a politicized agenda behind what you're saying. And it has much less to do with human rights, with discrimination, with this sort of um, empathy with protesters at large. Right. Because I, th- I think this is interesting. I guess the reason I brought this up or, or interrogated this, Aaron, is because um, I do think we on the left is uh, we are struck like the left struggles with how to talk about things in other countries when those countries are like vilified by our government. When their governments are vilified, it's 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 like it takes some work to be able to talk about what's happening there in a way that doesn't justify like regime change. Just to to maybe it doesn't take work. Maybe it's it's easy, but you wouldn't have been like during BLM. Well, uh, there there's some violence. So how does that? Well, no, but no, but the thing is, no one's trying to overthrow the U.S. government. I know, so, right? That's what I'm saying, right? It doesn't change the reality on the ground. So how and that, you know, like Asa, you were saying we have to be consistent. So I understand, Aaron, why you're framing it the way you are. But then, and I understand why we have to be consistent. And I don't actually know the answer. Is it like we have we can call out what's actually happening, and do, but do it in a way that's like, but the answer is not regime change and sanctions? Because I feel like no, sometimes also, the, the left, yeah, like, but, but we, I'm. But I'm not accepting I'm, I'm not accepting the comparison, actually, because, you know, BLM people weren't stabbing officers to death. And I'm saying I've seen that happen in, in Iran. Someone is doing that. I don't think it's the driving force of the protest. Um, I'm not alleging that there's like foreign interference uh, in these protests or that foreign actors are behind these protests. But I just I am I'm not going to shy away from acknowledging that it's that, that it's happening. And, and I don't and I don't think you should, just to be clear, like that's and, and that's part of having a very honest conversation. Right. When you have a very honest conversation, every part has to be brought into it and you can sort of like discuss, well, why is something? And because ultimately, that's what I think is most important. Right. It's it's trying to understand why are we in the situation that we're in? What is problematic about it? And what is a potential resolution to that? That's that's essentially why we talk about these things. Um, and in so this this phrase regime change, I think it's important to sort of unpack the difference between regime change and social movements or revolutions and whatever that means. I am not going to, I'm a historian by trade. And so I hate trying to predict things because from what I've read, they're fairly unpredictable, right? There, these situations are so volatile that by their nature, it is difficult to predict what will happen. But if we, if we look at precedent, to my mind, this scene, this fits into what is a social movement why? Because it's been there for a long, this isn't like the first time that Iranians have been like, we want freedom. This is an ongoing struggle. Whether you would call it a revolution, I think it depends on what direction it goes in. But that is different than regime change because regime change by its nature is from the outside, right? Nobody talks about we're going to regime change our own government. What we talk about is we're going to have a revolution. We say we have a social movement. That's the language people use when they're talking about their own governments and their own states. Regime change is the language you use when it's coming from the outside. And that is a completely different issue. And I do think it's important to unpack that because if I actually for one second believed maybe that the US or any outside power 
was acting in the interest of the Iranian people, then maybe I would entertain that conversation. But I know as a fact that they're not looking out for the interest of the Iranian people simply because they haven't. I'm not basing it on, on an illusion. I'm basing it on the fact that up until now, U.S. actions have not been in the interest of Iranian people. They just haven't. You do not think, I mean, you know, we talk about in this context, again, like I said, there's so much inconsistency. We talk about this in the lens of human rights. This is a human rights issue. I agree. You know what else was a human rights issue? Sanctions during a pandemic. That was a human rights issue uh, from the UN, human rights organizations. It's just problematic when you only cite human rights organizations and international law in the UN when it serves your purpose. And when you don't do it, when it doesn't serve your purpose, that's the inconsistency that we're talking about. So that's why I cannot imagine or I cannot argue logically or reasonably that U.S. policy is concerned about the well-being of Iranian civilians. It clearly hasn't been up until now. So why suddenly would that change? And that's why outside powers having any kind of intervention is so problematic. They're not doing it in the interest of those civilians. They're doing it in their own national interest. And so this is why supporting Iranians in Iran, listening to voices inside of Iran is so important. But how we talk about it um, is also important. And that, that's, that's why I'm saying that's not regime change. If they choose, if Iranian people choose, if they decide, you know what we do, we want another revolution. That's what we want. And they work towards that just as they did decades before, then that's their choice, right? That's inevitably um, their agency is to decide that if they have sustained protests that turn into a social movement that creates fundamental change, maybe not through revolution, but through I mean, you know, these are this is like sort of the semantics of how you define these terms. But, you know, if, if labor movements come into the play, which they have, by the way, you already have labor unions in Iran, um, teachers unions saying that they're going to go on strike. So this is this is this is a movement. This is people. And those, by the way, the, the labor movements, they have been there predating this for years through this economic crisis. Um, because obviously it's working class that are hurt the most by sanctions. They're the ones who are hurt the most by this like sort of economic collapse that they're seeing. So I just think it's important that when we're talking about it, we sort of don't fall into these traps of our political views, if that just, makes sense. Yeah, just to clarify, when I said regime change, I wasn't describing what was happening within Iran. I was describing like the clear motives of what the United States would like to do, which is anywhere from, I think, ranging from sanctions to regime change. So I wasn't talking about what's happening there. I'm just saying that. No, that's, absolutely. Yeah. And, and, also, and yeah. that that was the intended goal of, of sanctions. Right. Right. Like the, the, we can keep pretending otherwise. Like sure. we can keep saying it's to, to target the to I, Iranian authorities. But we know that they remain unscathed. And it's really Iran. It, it's it, the intention is to build pressure on the domestic population. Right. Right. So now I say that and sanctions is not the reason why Masa Amini is was killed. That's not the reason. That's simply not true. So it's there's also actions that the state takes itself that have absolutely they're totally independent and responsible for. But in terms of the the intended goal of I mean why why call it maximum pressure? There's something else to consider when we talk about US maximum pressure policies. It wasn't just sanctions. That wasn't the only pressure that they were putting on, right? When you look at assassination, sabotage, right. flying B-52s over the Persian Gulf, uh, seizing tankers and stealing Iranian oil, all of these were pressure tactics um, that were used under the Trump administration and to some extent are, continue to be used under the Biden administration. I mean, largely so actually continue to be used. So there is a policy to create pressure. 
and pressure creates instability. And that is um, designed by intention. Why hasn't the Biden administration gotten back into the Iran deal? And, you know, I have a personal stake in this question because back during the 2020 campaign, when I broke with some of my friends and I advocated that actually, you know, if you have to pick someone, you should elect Biden because at least he's going to reenter the Iran nuclear deal. That was one of my major uh, issues where I thought Biden would be a significant improvement over Trump, which, of course, killed the Iran nuclear deal. But instead, as you mentioned, Biden came in, could have returned on day one, but instead they've They've insisted on keeping a lot of the sanctions that Trump imposed. So what's going on there? And to hear the rest of the interview, please go to usefulidiots.substack.com. That was great. That was great. You even interrogated me a little bit, which is, you know, um, which is fair. You know, yeah. everything is fair game here. Everything is fair game. And, and interrogation is always fair game when you're talking with an academic. I just was showing, I was trying to show off to her that I could talk the talk. I think uh, I think you you showed you could talk the talk yeah. and walk the walk. Yeah. And yes, Asil um, had so much knowledge on a topic that, you know, as she discussed so eloquently, is so distorted in how we discuss Iran in the U.S. And uh, it was great to hear her perspective. Yeah, it was really great. And her book, uh, The State of Resistance, Politics, Culture and Identity in Modern Iran is very interesting. And it's put out by Cambridge University Press, which is pretty, pretty, pretty impressive. Fancy. Wow. Yeah. Well, thank you to Asil for yeah. joining us. Thanks everyone for tuning in. Yeah. If you want to support us, get bonus content, usefulidiots.substack.com. And we will see you next week. And also don't forget to join us Mondays at YouTube at youtube.com slash usefulidiots at 10 a.m. when we do our Monday mornings, which is when we go over the Sunday morning news shows that we watch so that you don't have to. And then at 11 a.m. EST, you can join us on Colin. Bye, everybody. Hello, thank you so much for listening to and watching Useful Idiots. For full episodes and extended interviews, please subscribe at usefulidiots.substack.com. You can subscribe on YouTube at youtube.com slash usefulidiots for clips, live streams, and full episodes. Also, subscribe to us wherever you find your podcast. Follow us on Twitter at usefulidiotpod and use the hashtag usefulidiotspod. Join us Mondays at 10 a.m. for the Useful Idiots Monday Morning Show, where we discuss the Sunday morning news shows so you don't have to watch them. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.